while I am not a huge fan of really gory movies or psychological thrillers, but every now and then uh, I, I kind of brave watching one uh, because there's a movie that everyone's talking about. You know, there might be, be references that people like to make, and, and I, I need to experience this so that I actually start understanding the references that, that, that I keep hearing. And one of the most brutal movies I feel that I've watched uh, that fits this category is the movie Seven. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, the film was released in 1995, starring Brad Pitt, Kevin Spacey, Gwyneth Paltrow, and others. And it gives a really disturbing look at the seven deadly sins. The famous line is, what's in the box? I I didn't understand that for a while, and then I watched it, and I was like, I don't want to know what's in the box after I saw that. But this movie provides a really good example, I think, of how our general culture perceives these sins, that they are really grand or really brutal sins. I mean, we don't call them deadly sins for nothing, but that line of reasoning does us a disservice. Because if this list of seven, seven of the deadliest sins are considered, you know, we only think of them in these very egregious practices, then it's easy to find them outside of ourselves. You can say, you can have this threshold that it's like, well, it's not really, you know, wrath isn't really that bad unless it is this. Now, if we equate something like wrath to brutality then if I am a relatively mild-mannered human being, I'm never going to consider that it's a stumbling block for myself. Now, the seven deadly sins, as they've been understood throughout church history, are not grand displays of depravity, but are instead very subtle vices that have taken root in our hearts. If our attention is focused on warding off the big boogeyman, which is never going to come, we're going to miss those those shrewd tendrils that find their way into our hearts. Those shrewd tendrils that flank us when we are unprepared. Now, the seven deadly sins are not called deadly because they are striking displays of evil, but more fittingly, they are unassuming vices that lead us as unsuspecting victims on the path towards death. They're deadly because they lead to death in us. Now this morning, as we begin the sermon series looking at each of these seven vices in turn, um, you know, as I've been studying these themes over the last couple of months, I'm willing to bet that all of us have some level of struggle with each of these seven. None of us are immune to the alluring draw of what these vices offer us or promise us. And much like the mantra of Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA, the first step of healing for us is acknowledging that there's a problem. So I hope that as we go through this list that we can do some self-reflection, that we can do some diagnosis along the way of how each of these seven have manifested themselves in our lives. Not that we can feel guilty about ourselves, right? not that we feel this you know, judgment coming, but that when we see the problem, when it is revealed, we can allow God's refining light to shine upon us and bring true transformation in our lives. As I'm going to 
circle back to at the end. The, the goal of this is not for us to identify it and then beat ourselves up and try really, really hard, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps to be better. You're going to make some progress for some time, but unless that heart is changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to find ourselves eventually back at the path of least resistance. Now, I should also note as we think about this list of seven, that this, this list of seven sins does not occur anywhere in Scripture as a comprehensive list. Some folks avoid it because, you know, there you have like the, the fruits of the Spirit, the nine fruits that are there. It's not even exactly a corresponding fruit for each uh, of the sins. But we don't have any list like this, so should we be talking about this or not? And this is one of the place, places that we can borrow from the tradition of countless generations of Christians before us. Right? Because this, this list of seven has been curated, it has been gathered by saints across the centuries who have sought to follow Jesus and have cast aside any and all hurdles that hinder that process. So this morning we're going to begin our journey by looking at the vice of wrath. But what constitutes wrath? Is wrath the same thing as anger or is it worse somehow? If it is different than anger, how do we know if we've crossed the line from anger to wrath? So let's explore some of these questions. Now, as I said a moment ago, there's no comprehensive list of these seven vices anywhere in Scripture, but that doesn't mean that the Scripture is devoid of them. The Bible has a lot to say about anger. So if we want to start with anger, we should consider whether or not anger can ever be good, or is it always bad? Now, the church tradition actually disagrees upon the place of anger in our lives. Thomas Aquinas, uh, he was the, uh, really the premier theologian of the 13th century. He suggested, and he was one of the, the figureheads that really developed part of this list of the seven. It had existed before him, but I think our current modern understanding was largely shaped by Aquinas. But he would say that there is a place for anger in our lives when the rightful target of that anger is injustice. When anger pushes us to move in a way that rights wrongs, Aquinas would argue that that is a good use of anger. Now, this, is, this aligns with what we see in the Scriptures. There are countless times when God gets angry. Right? He, he is described as having anger that burned against, you know, fill in the blank, various people or situations. But it was always in a failure. You know, he, he wasn't just angry to, to, to get angry. You know, he, he didn't just like blow up for no reason because it was always in, in the context of a failure to uphold the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love people. We see the same attitude of Jesus when he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He goes to the temple. He sees all these vendors hawking their wares in the temple courts, they're taking advantage of people. They're, they're in the court of the Gentiles, so they're blocking the only space that the Gentiles could go to worship Yahweh. And so Jesus makes a whip, and he starts flipping tables, driving people out. Jesus is, I mean, if he's doing that kind of action, he is clearly angry. Jesus was passionate about the proper worship and access to God. This action showed his concern that he cared. Garrett Kaiser said, he said, I am unable to commit to any Messiah who doesn't knock over tables. 
We want a God who is passionate about justice and what is right. Jesus was angry. He was furious even. But he didn't sin. So we know that anger can't be all bad. It is not sinful merely to be angry. Maybe we can think of anger on a spectrum. Anger is a sign that we care. If you had no anger, then it would lead you to apathy. Apathy isn't going to fight for the cause of the vulnerable. Apathy is not going to seek to restore a broken world. Apathy is just going to ignore it. Just let it continue on its own devices. Apathy is not a virtue. So the lack of anger perhaps is not what we should be pursuing. But I think too much anger or the wrong kind of anger is what leads us on the other side of the scale to wrath. And so wrath being listed as one of the seven deadly sins, we know it's bad, but how do we know that we've crossed into it? Now, interesting, here is where the church tradition tradition disagrees with Aquinas. Right, the Desert Fathers, so these would have been uh, kind of monks who... So he, here's what happened. So I, I'm debating whether or not I'm giving you a history lesson. Right? So for the first about 400 years of the church, the church was persecuted by the Roman Empire. It was illegal to be a Christian, and there was all kinds of persecution. You had Nero who would like burn Christian, Christians alive as lamp, you know, lamps for his garden, sending Christians to be fed to the lions in the Colosseum. So Constantine was the emperor, and in 381, he gave the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity legal. Soon after that, Christianity became the national religion of the Roman Empire. All right, so you've been used to being put down all your life as a Christian. All of a sudden now, anyone can be a Christian. So in order, how do you show that you really are passionate about God? Because it was easy to be a Christian now that that persecution had gone away. So around the 5th and 6th centuries, there are these kind of super-Christians, there's quotes there if you're listening, who in or, they thought that in order to really show that I was passionate about Jesus, I had to go out, I had to forsake all you know, comfort and live in a, a ascetic lifestyle in the desert. So they were called the Desert Fathers. And so with nothing else to do, hanging out in the wilderness, they did a lot of thinking and a lot of writing about God. So the Desert Fathers argued that there was no such thing as just anger against your neighbor. They suggested that one of the goals of life is to be free from anger towards others. That if you're going to be angry, they would say, that that anger should be directed inwardly at your own sin. Because they say anger otherwise causes blindness. It obscures the person of Christ before us and within us. And some of this language about blindness makes sense to us, right? Because when we lose control of our temple, temper, what do we call it? Seeing red. Right? That there, there's, there's a new lens, a new framework that we see life. Now, Paul writes about anger in Ephesians chapter 4, 26 and 27. He says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give a, the devil a foothold. See, Paul is creating a causative relationship between holding on to anger and giving the enemy a foothold, a way into our lives. 
Jesus said some, some really tough things about anger himself on the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5, 21 to 23. You have heard it said, this is Jesus' words, to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So there's this link between murder and judgment. Jesus continues, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anger now is linked with judgment. So Jesus is equating anger, anger with fellow human beings on that same level as murder. So how do we reconcile these two perspectives? That sometimes anger can be good to help us propel us into action, or anger can you know, be a, a place of judgment on the line on the same level as murder. Dallas Willard used to say that feelings are good servants, but are disastrous masters. Anger is an emotion which is not inherently sinful. As we saw Jesus getting angry, it was, it's not inherently sinful to be angry, but when it takes over our faculties, we are headed down the wrong path. Maybe we should think about wrath as anger unhinged. And again, even I'm, I'm, I want to be careful with that because to us that, that seems about like magnitude. If you think of sound waves, right, there's amplitude and there's frequency, how fast. So, so that, like, sorry, that was probably way too nerdy. Let's, let, let's just stick with amplitude, right? Unhinged doesn't just mean that it's like big explosions of anger. Unhinged can also mean how we manifest that anger in our lives. When we allow anger to get the better of us, I think that's wrath. And the early chapters of Genesis give us a, a tangible expression of this continuum. So the first two children born to humans, Cain and Abel, they have a disagreement. Both provide an offering to God. Abel's is accepted. Cain's is rejected. And as a result, Cain was angry. Listen to what the Lord says to Cain in the midst of his anger. This is Genesis chapter 4, 6 and 7. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Crouching, it's poised, it's ready to strike. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Right? In Cain's anger, sin was crouching at the door, waiting for the right opportunity to strike. The desire was for his anger to take control. And we know the tragedy is that it did. But I think this echoes the words of Willard, that anger as a servant can be a good thing, but anger that has taken over our faculties is a horrible master tool towards us. Leads us to all kinds of places we don't want to go. Anger can spur us into action, but it can also destroy us. A righteous anger can lead us to pursue the cause of justice, but when that longing for justice turns to violence and scorn, we're already on the path to wrath. Wrath is not concerned with restoration. It is concerned with revenge. Now, I know this is going to be a little controversial, but bear with me. In May of 2020, George Floyd was murdered at the hands of Minneapolis police. And what was just, you know, that, that was at the time just the latest in a string of events that showcased police brutality. And so countless people advocating for justice took to the streets in protest. Their anger for the death of yet another person of color in the custody of police left them wanting justice 
wanting accountability. But as the nation watched, some of, some of those protests turned ugly. There was rioting, there was looting, violence. Now, just to make clear, that was not the majority of protests. It was a very small minority who turned to violence. Now, when that, you know, news of these riots were happening, I saw social media explode with quotes from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. One of the, the lines that comes from his uh, message sermon, The Other America, said, I quote, the riot is the language of the unheard. And what I saw on social media is this quote being used to justify the violence that we all saw. But it's important, if you read his, his uh, Other America uh, message, he was never encouraging riots. He was never putting his stamp of approval on them. In fact, in that context, just before that statement that that's pulled from, he states that he continues to believe that nonviolence protest is the most potent weapon available. He was stating that if a government like America continued to ignore the voice of the margin marginalized, like what we saw, this was going to be a natural byproduct that people would resort to violence, that anger of an oppressed group would come out, which is what we saw. Now, I know this is a highly charged issue, but as I study the virtues and vices, as I read the scriptures, as I listen to the legacy of people like Dr. King, it's my, it is my opinion that the rioting that we saw was not the path of Jesus. Anger taking to the streets in protest of the murder of George Floyd was a cry for justice, I think that's a good use of anger. But the small body who turned to violence had allowed themselves to be mastered by anger, which I think led them to what the, the tradition would consider wrath. But it's not just the big events that make national news where we see wrath. We see it in domestic violence in our neighborhoods, road rage, altercations where people are literally getting stabbed and shot over mask wearing in public. For, for goodness sake, 80% of Twitter sometimes feel like a community of people just spiraling towards wrath against one another. Wrath permeates every area of our life, so how do we combat it? I think we need to start by identifying it in our lives. Most of these vices are areas that we can self-diagnose. By having a knowledge of ourselves, we can invite the great healer, God himself, to bring restoration to our soul. So how do we identify it? Anger is a sign that we care about something. But wrath reveals that perhaps we aren't angry about the right things. Right? The root sin of all of these seven deadly sins is pride. In the words of Rebecca DeYoung, wrath arises when we defend the false self at all costs. It comes when we are trying to defend our own little kingdoms. So when you respond in anger, what is that anger guarding? What source of your identity is it trying to protect? Could be your reputation, your wealth, your possessions, your need for control. I mean, the list could go on. What is that thing behind your anger that is causing you to respond with such ferocity? One of the places that I've been working on my own anger in my own life is, you know, at, at home. I know, I know parents of children, caregivers of children can relate. When there is chaos, 
when the children talk back, when they refuse to listen, those hackles begin to rise, right? Maybe you don't go like full nuclear in front of your children, but that wrath is like just barely being held back. When one of my kids gets me upset, what is usually behind it? Typically, it's because of, you know, one of them refuses to listen to me. I've asked or I've told them to do something, probably multiple times, and they just won't do it. Or, or we're in an argument, argument, and I'm continuously being interrupted before I lose my, before I lose my cool. Now, the issue, ultimately, is not my child. They contribute to the process, but the issue is ultimately not my child, but it's my own defense. I get set off when I feel that I'm being disrespected. If one of my children refuses to do what I ask, you know, like I'm, I'm a benevolent dictator. You're refusing to bow before my rule. It's meant to be sarcastic. Or, you know, if I'm continuously being interrupted and I can't get a word in, I've lost control of that conversation. And so it's easy to raise my voice, show that power so that I can wrest control back. What is it, you know, what is it for you? Thomas Aquinas said that there are three areas where anger goes wrong, where anger turns to wrath. First, when we get angry too easily. Now, not all wrath is going to look like verbal explosions. Angering too easily can just look like irritability, being irritable all the time. And this is especially true when we live life without margins. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, discusses the, the discipline of fasting. And he says that when we, when we fast, when we go without food for a period of time, we might find that ourselves starting to get irritable. We might start lashing out to people. And he, he claims, I think rightfully so, that we use food to mask our anger. That if we're fasting and we start feeling those pangs of anger, that we shouldn't dismiss them, that we're just hungry, but instead recognize that actually what we have inside is the spirit of anger that we need to repent of. Now, I mean, this is such a culturally accepted mode of wrath. We call it being hangry, and we dismiss it. Snickers has launched a marketing campaign basically suggesting, you know, if you're not quite feeling like yourself, grab a Snickers. So you can go back to normal instead of being Danny Trejo or, or Betty White. Is the problem that we're just hungry, or is it like Foster said, that we need to identify the spirit of anger within us? The second way that anger moves towards wrath is that when we are angrier than we should be, right? These are the disproportionate responses, right? Road rage, great example of this. Someone cuts you off, right? No real damage is done. There's no accident, but, you know, your pride is a little wounded. You know, your impatience starts to tick off the charts, and you blow up. I mean, like, I, I've, I shouldn't laugh at it, but sometimes if I'm, you know, I'm on, like, 376, and I see this happen, and I, like, look over, and I can see the person in the car next to me, like, screaming and, like, physically shaking their steering wheel. I'm like, what is... Yes, this was, you know, I would argue it was kind of a jerk move, but, like, do you need to physically rip your steering wheel off of the car to, like, prove your point? Seems a bit harsh to me, just because you were inconvenienced. Now, I got, an, I got an embarrassing story from my personal life for this one. This was, like, 11 years ago. So Elizabeth was still a baby in diapers, 
we were visiting my in-laws, um, and it was, uh, it was that Halloween night, Sunday night game when the Steelers lost to the Saints. I still remember that they lost to the Saints back in 2011. And actually, it was 2010, excuse me. And I was headed to bed grumpy. Everybody else had gone to bed. I stayed up, which probably wish I hadn't stayed up because they lost. Um, and so I'm getting ready for bed. I'm grumpy. And Elizabeth stirred. She was in the crib, and she starts crying. And, you know, when I, when I picked her up, she definitely had a full diaper in there. But, you know, we're, we were traveling, and there wasn't really a changing table, so I, like, put her on the ground to, to try to change her, and that child just would not say, stay still. I was sharing this with Elizabeth a couple days ago. She's like, sounds like me, you know. She was, like, fighting me every step of the way, and I could not get the new diaper on her. And so I got so frustrated, right? I had this balled-up, filled diaper, thankfully only had urine in it, and I just chucked it against the wall about as hard as I could. Ron and Barb, if you're listening, I apologize for that. But Sarah heard it. She woke up and she sat up in bed and asked, what's wrong? And I responded something like this. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk about it. Probably with that kind of tone. And so she laid back down and I, you know, immediately like the remorse is starting to set in. You've been there, right? You feel guilty. You know what she did was wrong. So the next morning we're driving back to Pittsburgh and, you know, Sarah brought it up. I'm like, oh, maybe we can just pretend this didn't happen. But she she brought it up. And I'll never forget the link that Sarah drew. She said she understood why I was frustrated about Elizabeth's lack of cooperation. She understood that it was frustrating for me to not be able to do what I was trying to do in that moment. But she said that my response seemed disproportionate. It was not in proportion with the inconvenience. I was far angrier than I deserved to be in that moment. And that was a huge epiphany for me. I mean, I, I'm not like, I hope, I hope you don't walk out the door and be like, man, Pastor Chris is just an angry man. Um, I have anger in me. And I don't, this isn't my normal response all the time. But it was a huge epiphany for me in times when I would allow anger to just blow up in the ways that I struggled with it. Disproportionate anger. Lastly, Aquinas says that wrath is displayed when we stay angry too long. This is for those who hold on to grudges. The incident is long past, but we're still holding on to that hurt in our hearts. We're still allowing that that hurt to motivate us, yielding it to passive-aggressive tendencies. Many times we would rather lash out at others than do the hard work of looking inside at what ails us. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. Right, a son gets his inheritance early from his father, basically saying, I wish you were dead, Dad. Give me what's mine. He says, sayonara. And then he goes and he blows it all in immoral living. He's broke, conjures this idea to go back to his wealthy father and say, at least I can be safe there. At least I can be fed. I'll just be a servant. But when he comes back, the father welcomes him with open arms, back as a son, throws a feast for him, But at the end of the story, his older brother is angry about this. He refuses to go into the feast, which is really a slap in the face to the father, but that's a sermon for another time. Now, when the father confronts his eldest child, the son gives some cockeyed story about how he felt burned in this process. It was the father who was affected by the younger son's decision, but yet it was the brother, not the father, but the older brother who refused to forgive him when he returned. 
wrath can be holding onto our anger too long. Now, I've tried this morning to give some concrete examples of what wrath can look like, some of which has, has looked like in my own life. But I'd encourage you to do the hard work of trying to assess where this takes place, how this is rooted in your life. I think one of the best diagnostic tools that you can use is journaling. Right? For a week, journal every time you feel angry. Write down what triggered it, how you responded. You don't even need to write it on a piece of paper. We keep our, I don't have my phone on me right now, but we keep our phones with us at all times. Open up a little notepad on there, jot it down. I think it can be a really helpful tool for us to, to try to connect the dots, find those trend lines to see where that emotional response of anger comes in our life. And then at the end of the week, go back. Look at all the times that you have been angry and inventory them. How many of those bouts and fits of anger, once the dust has settled, seem like genuine, righteous anger? How many examples of anger were the result instead of petty or self-serving tendencies? Now, my guess, my hypothesis, is that most, if not all, will actually fall into that category of petty or self-serving. And this is why the Desert Fathers said that we should get rid of anger. Not that there aren't cases when righteous anger for justice is appropriate, but when push comes to shove, if we're trying to get rid of all the quote-unquote bad anger, it really means that we just need to get rid of all of our anger because the vast majority of it is bad. Now, there's no magic switch for us to, to make this propensity towards wrath just go away. But there are things that we can do to begin on the path. For starters, anger engages us on the physiological level. I think of all of the sins, uh, the seven deadly sins or vices, it's probably the one that is most visceral, the most that is kind of entwined, not just spiritually, but physically in our bodies. And so, as, as we saw earlier, when we live without margins, we can be sucked into bouts of anger more easily. So self-care is something that we can do to help. Make sure that you're getting enough rest. You know, when Richard Foster talked about fasting, when, when, when I fast from food, I don't get hangry. I found where my anger really started to come out as evidence from that diaper-throwing incident is when I lack sleep. Like, that's my thing. Sleep is what I use to mask my spiritual problems. All right, so make sure you're getting enough sleep, exercising regularly, eating well. The great American preacher, Jonathan Edwards, he used to write down in a diary everything that he ate and how it made him feel. Now, I'm not suggesting that you need to do, go there, but there is this relationship with how we care for our bodies and how our emotional needs manifest themselves. Now, this can help. This is, I think, a starting point, but it is mainly symptom control. Anger is not just a feeling, but it, at its core, it can be a spiritual problem for us as well, as we've seen. In the tradition, each of these vices has a corresponding virtue. Right? We can't just stop being angry, but we can practice patience. Patience is what the tradition has seen as the opposite of, of wrath. Right? We can slow our role in a situation. Much of wrath is this defense of our personal kingdoms. When we feel that we've been wronged in those moments, it's really easy for us to snap, to lash out, to move towards wrath. 
Instead, we should ask ourselves the questions, do we trust God? Do we trust God to make it right? Paul in his letter to the Romans writes, this is 12, uh, 17 and following, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And listen to this, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance, the Bible says, is the Lord's. Do we believe that he is going to take care of it in the end? that he is going to hold those accountable who hurt us? If so, that's the pathway towards patience. I mean, we've seen that that Jesus got angry. In the Old Testament, God shows his anger. But I, I have to say, I trust the anger of Jesus far more than I trust my own. I am too easily mastered by my anger. Jesus was able to keep his anger in a subservient role in his life. In fact, with all the talk of God's anger in the Old Testament time and time again, as we saw this morning, he is described as being slow to anger. Yes, there are places where God refuses to sit idle anymore, but God is incredibly patient with his people. So patience, you know, there's that adage, don't pray for patience, God will give it to you. I don't know if that's true or not. Just practice patience in what he already has given you. I think another virtue for us to practice is also that of gentleness. So not only slowing things down, being long of nose ourselves, but gentleness. Responding with compassion and kindness instead of wrath. Right? Jesus got angry at the moneylenders in the temple. He did. But do you know where he didn't get angry and respond harshly? When they unfairly tried him, beat him, tortured him on a cross to, ju- to die. Jesus did not get angry and defend himself in that moment, even when it would have been fully justified for him to do so. How can we imitate this character trait of Jesus to respond with gentleness, even if someone doesn't deserve it, even if there is that twinge of justice? Because I know a lot of times my anger comes out because there is, there is a seed of justice And I'm not saying that we need to just stop all of that. That's what the Desert Fathers say. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to be very careful of what it means to be mastered by it. Right, Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Practicing patience and gentleness are going to set us on the path to seeing our wrath in that rearview mirror. But this isn't something we can do on our own. We can't just will ourselves to change but I encourage you, identify these places, invite the Holy Spirit, confess it when it happens. If you're taking that journal and you're like, go back afterwards and being like, Lord, I messed it. I messed up. I'm going to keep responding like that. I need you to, to change my heart so I don't. So that's not my first, first response. Now, I've got some reflection questions that I, I want to close with. And you're welcome to think through these. They're not going to be up on the screen for the final song, but you're welcome to think about them through the last song. I'll also post them on Facebook tomorrow. So you can think about them through the week. So you can, you can jot them down now or just get them then. I would say if you have a roommate, a friend, 
spouse, kids, bring these questions up with them. Because sometimes we can have blind spots to how we respond in certain situations. We can have blind spots to our own anger, and so talking about it with others can help to shed some light on those places that we've never even seen. So here we go. Here's, here's a couple questions. I say three questions. It's really more than three questions. Three groupings of questions, we'll say. What are my anger triggers? What do those anger triggers reveal about my hurt, my hopes, my plans, my sense of what I deserve, what I can control? How much of my anger is good anger? So what are my triggers, and how much of that anger that I show is actually good? Secondly, what are healthy ways for me to respond to injustices that don't take me down the path of wrath? Anger is good, as, as we saw. It can be good under Aquinas if that's directed against injustice. So how do we respond to injustice? We don't want to be apathetic, but how do we respond to injustice well? Be a people of action who seek God's restoration but not be carried over to wrath. And lastly, what is one situation where I need to focus on increasing my patience? And what is one relationship or who is one person that I need to stop being harsh and start being gentle towards? So those are, those are my questions. And I encourage you. Like I said, I, I've been, one of the things that we've been, man, I'm going long, I'm sorry. One of the things that we've been thinking about as a church, especially in this time of COVID where we don't have kids ministry, I think, like, I have plans, they don't know this yet, but I have plans to, like, bring this up at the dinner table one night or finding ways for us to dialogue about this together so that we together are trying to journey th- through this pathway towards gentleness and patience, especially with each other, not to mention everyone else. So talk about it with, with those that you're close to. Let me pray. Lord, you've been a great example to us of what it means to be a God of justice, but also one who is increasingly patient. That in your patience that you left sins committed, kind of let them go so that your glory might be revealed in your grace through Jesus. Lord, help us to not have our first reaction be one of anger, be one of wrath, but cultivate in us the ability to be patient, to rest in you, and knowing that you're going you're gonna to set all things right in the end. Help us to be people of empathy and kindness with others. Lord, I'm grateful that none of us walks through this path alone, that we have one another, but we also have you walking every step of the way with us. Lord, we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.